Oh my goodness, I thought I would never get this podcast out into the world. And if you're a regular listener, you have probably been thinking the same thing. What have I been up to? Well, I have completely finished and formatted two children's picture books and also a geography workbook for the Making Connections High School Canadian Geography textbook. And that's what I've been up to as well as working in my other bricks and mortar business. I have missed you. As promised, I will be doing some more Indigenous content. It was really hard to narrow down which people or topics I was going to do for this second batch of Indigenous content. And so what I decided to do was talk about Thanon Delther, who was an amazing interpreter and guide and peacemaker. And then I would do a segment on the Haudenosaunee Confederacy because that has played a very important role in Canadian history. So those are the two that I'm going to be sharing with you on this one. I'm going to include the introduction from my last episode just to give a context for the sharing of Indigenous history in headphone history. If this is your first time coming to the Indigenous content that I have put out there in honor of National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Um, You'll have a context for that. And if you heard our last episode, season three, episode two, you will have already heard this introduction, but bear with us. We just want to make sure everything is well communicated for those who are coming into it for the first time in this episode. Without further ado, here's the introduction, and then we'll learn about Thanon Delther and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Welcome to Canada Homeschools, the dose of inspiration and encouragement for Canadian homeschoolers. Canada Homeschools features interviews with homeschool group organizers, resource suppliers, and conversations with everyday homeschoolers just like you, all from a Canadian perspective. I'm your host, Rowan Atkinson. I'd like to thank you for joining me. Now let's get started. <laughs> In 400 meters. In 100 meters. This episode will be a little different, but I hope it will be a treat for you and you can share it with your children. We are taking some time to honor our Indigenous people in honor of Canada's National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And how we've decided to do that is to share with you some excerpts about Indigenous people from Headphone History, which is our history curriculum for elementary age students. 
In a review in the Old Schoolhouse magazine by Crystal McLean, headphone history was described this way, quote, I found that the content was balanced, giving both the traditionally held view of the European explorers and not shying away from the darker parts of Canada's history and giving a voice to the First Nations people who were undoubtedly overlooked during my primary and secondary school days, end quote. It's not really our goal to be political, on this podcast, but because one of our main products is about the history of Canada, it just seems fitting that we take some time to share some Canadian history with you. If you like it, you can get so much more at headphonehistory.com. I will also have some printables on the webpage for this podcast episode. You can find that at canadahomeschools.com and look for season three, episodes two and three. There will be free printables that go along with the stories we are sharing. I was once asked at a homeschooling conference what right I had to write about Indigenous people if I am not an Indigenous person. So I just want to be clear that I am writing as a historian after careful research, and I am not pretending that these are my stories, but I am just trying to give a voice to the people in Canadian history that need to be heard, and I wish I knew more individual stories from our history that we don't have records to learn from. Some of the stories I'll share with you are completely fictional that I made up because for me, part of a love of history is to take some time and knowing what you're learning and imagining what it was like to be that person in that time in history. And so I've taken a moment or two to use my imagination and try to bring history to life for you and your children. To quote Lisa Marie Fletcher of the Canadian Homeschooler from her review on headphone history, quote, the inclusion of stories and legends to take facts and make them come more alive was a great touch, end quote. Okay, so that's enough of a preamble. Just remember to go to canadahomeschools.com, season three, episodes two and three, to get your free printables so that if you choose to do this with your children, they'll have something to color while they're listening and you can make a little Indigenous Canadian unit study out of it. In the month of June, we gave a percentage of sales from Canadian educational resources to help Indigenous families who have to travel for medical care. And we're going to be doing that again in September and October. Then and Delther, Peacemaker and Guide, 1714. Then and Delther's stomach was aching with hunger. Two days ago, she had managed to snare a small rabbit, which she had eaten gratefully. She was used to the hunger, but she was not used to the overwhelming feeling of being utterly alone in the world. It was very tempting to just give up, but she must keep going. She was determined to find her people before her Cree captors found her. It was not likely they were still in pursuit after almost a year But a few months of slavery at the hands of her enemies had made her and her friend determined to put as much distance between them as possible. They had escaped and traveled so far. Now her friend was dead, and she was alone. 
She just had to connect with her own people. For without a people, who was she? She must do it soon before she would be forced to endure another brutally cold northern winter. She didn't know if she could face that again. She had traveled on foot for months, stuffing her worn moccasins with fur from the small animals she had been able to snare as they were getting worn out. The summer berries were long gone, and finding food was getting more difficult. The geese were gathering in flocks in preparation for the long flight south. Keep going, she told herself. Must keep going. Then Delther froze as she heard a gunshot. It could mean only one of two things. Her enemies, the Cree, had guns from trading with the Hudson's Bay Company. Her people, the Chippewyans, did not have guns. So, it wasn't her people. Or, it could be members of the Hudson Bay Company themselves. She wasn't sure if this option posed as much danger as the Cree, or if they would be able to get her to safety. A flock of geese had been startled into flight by the gunshot, and a few other shots followed. It's a hunting party, not a war party, she reasoned. She would approach cautiously and see what her options were. If they were Cree, she would attempt to retreat into the forest silently and continue her journey while taking a wide detour. If members of the Hudson Bay Company, she would take her chances. She picked up a trail and followed the tracks to a clearing by a small creek. To her relief, it was a group of Hudson's Bay men who had set up their tents as a base from which to hunt geese. She lifted her chin, strode into the clearing, and after a few strides, fainted in a crumpled heap at their feet, overcome with exhaustion, cold, hunger, and hopeful relief. The hunters from the Hudson's Bay Company got Thanandelther warm and gave her something to eat and took her back to the safety of the nearby York Factory trading post. She spent the winter recovering her strength and learning to communicate with the English. She had also picked up the Cree dialect while she was held captive. She told the story of how she came to arrive at the hunting camp, which resulted in her being referred to as the slave woman. It wasn't that she was still a slave, but they were referring to her as the one who had been enslaved by the Cree and had escaped. By spring, Thanandelther was able to speak her native Chippewaian, Cree, and now English. She was a remarkable woman. The governor of Hudson's Bay Company, Sir James Knight, had been wrestling in his mind for some time on how to expand the fur trade further north toward the Churchill River, which was the Chippewaian territory. Company explorers had also found rich mineral deposits in the area. The Cree, who were the company's main suppliers of fur in the area, did not want the Chippewaians to get in on the trade and give them competition. They wanted to maintain their superior status and advantage in what would become northern Manitoba. The constant fighting between the two First Nations prevented the establishment of another trading post in Chippewaian territory. The governor needed an interpreter, someone who could mediate between the two factions and promote peace. He did not have to look far to find his interpreter. She was right there in York Factory. He would speak with Thanandelther. Thanandelther thought about Governor Knight's proposed expedition to try to make peace between the Cree and the Chippewaian nations and to extend the fur trade to the Depawaian people. The extension of trade to her people would provide them with guns and other trade goods, which would make them stronger against their enemies. 
part of her did not want to make peace with the Cree, who had captured and enslaved her, perhaps. But if there was peace, it would help prevent that from happening to others of her people. She was grateful for the help she had received from the Hudson's Bay Company, and she would be reunited with her people. She agreed, and in June of 1715, she, Hudson's Bay employee William Stewart, and 150 Cree people set out on a mission to meet with the Chippewaian people to negotiate a peace agreement. It was a long journey and took them into winter. The large expedition broke up into smaller parties to better survive the winter, and some returned to York Factory. Then Endelther was able to persuade her group to continue on. The remaining party consisted of Than and Delther, William Stewart, and about a dozen Cree. One day, they came across the bodies of nine Chippewaian who had been killed by some Cree. Later, the Cree would say that it was in self-defense. The Cree in Than and Delther's group were worried that the Chippewaian people would want to retaliate, and for this reason, they didn't want to proceed any further. She had them stay put while she tracked the rest of the Chippewaian party who had escaped the killing. She found the survivors and spent ten days trying to convince them to return with her to meet with the Cree. For ten days she reasoned with them and persuaded them until her voice was hoarse with use. Finally, they agreed to return with her. According to Hudson's Bay Company records, her perpetual talking persuaded 400 Chippewaians to return and make peace with the Cree. The pipe of peace was smoked, and peace ceremonies were established. Then in Delther, William Stewart, the Cree, and some of the Chippewaian people started the long journey to return to York Factory. Both Governor Knight and William Stewart gave her the credit for establishing peace, and Knight nicknamed her Joan because she reminded him of Joan of Arc in the way she had bravely led the people. He said that, quote, she was one of a very high spirit and of the firmest resolution and of great courage. End quote. Plans were soon underway for a second journey, which would establish a fort at Churchill River in the Chippewaian Territory. Of course, Than and Delther was to go, as well as some of her fellow Chippewaians. She was looking forward to the trip with enthusiasm. Unfortunately, she grew ill and developed a fever which took her life. In February 1717, just a few short months before the expedition was to take place, Then and Delther's brave and eloquent efforts resulted in a lasting peace between two First Nations and opened the way for the Hudson's Bay Company to expand further north. Then and Delther was given a full ceremonial burial by Governor Knight, who said her loss made him very melancholy. It was difficult for him to find another interpreter to equal her, and he ended up having to pay someone the value of sixty skins to take her place, even if they could never fill her shoes, or moccasins, I should say. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy in the spirit of understanding the continuous timeline of First Nations people in the history of Canada, we're going to go back in time a little bit and talk about something we mentioned only briefly in Volume 1, the formation of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. You may also know it as the Iroquois Confederacy or the League of Five Nations. 
For many years, historians believed that the Haudenosaunee Confederacy formed in the mid-1500s, but now some historians think it was longer ago, closer to 1100 CE. No one knows the exact date of the unification of the Iroquois tribes, but it is safe to say it happened in time immemorial. The Iroquoian nations lived in what is now the northeastern United States and southern Ontario and Quebec. Some of the nations included the Mohawk Nation, the Seneca, Onondaga, Oneida, and the Cayuga Nations. What were the Iroquoian nations like prior to the Confederacy? They were farmers and lived year-round in villages surrounded by wooden stockades. They grew corn, beans, and squash and supplemented their diet with fish and game. Villages could contain a few longhouses or even as many as 50. A longhouse was just that, a long house, with bunks on the side walls and cooking fires in the middle. The tribes were divided into clans, and the matrilineal women, called clan mothers, chose the chiefs and held them accountable. Prior to the coming of the Europeans, the Iroquoian nations raided and fought each other, as well as the Algonquian nations to the north and east. There was a cycle of enmity, and continuous conflict. If someone did something bad to someone, they would get revenge by doing something bad back to them. It kept going and going. There once was a man whose personal life had suffered greatly as a result of these conflicts, and that man was Hiawatha. There are many versions of his name, but that is the one most people are familiar with. Hiawatha was said to have been a chief from the Mohawk Nation. In the course of the conflicts among the people of the Longhouse, his daughters had been killed by his mortal enemy. He loved his daughters and was inconsolable in his grief. Because of his sorrow, he went on a journey to get away and process what he had gone through. On his journey of grief, he met a man who was a prophet of the people by the name of Daganawida. Daganawida was a spiritual teacher and led Hiawatha into the process of healing and forgiveness. It was so difficult for Hiawatha to forgive his enemy for what he had done, and his unforgiveness had been consuming his mind so that he couldn't even function as the chief that he was supposed to be. Have you ever struggled with forgiving someone? Most of us have a difficult time forgiving others for little things, and Hiawatha had been through a very great difficulty indeed. Daganawida taught Hiawatha how to use a wampum belt over and over again to remind him of the importance of promises, relationships, peace, and harmony. This is a good time to talk about wampum because it was very important in the First Nations cultures around the Great Lakes and will come up again as we learn more of our history. A wampum string or belt was made of beads and was not just for decoration in the Iroquoian culture. Even though oral tradition was very important, there were times when a physical representation of something like an agreement was necessary. In some ancient Middle Eastern cultures, for example, people would give each other their shoe as a symbol of their agreement. In most European cultures, a written and signed or sealed document would represent an agreement. For the Iroquoian nations, a belt of wampum with a specific design represented a promise or agreement. Different colors of beads would represent different things in the patterns of the wampum. 
Daganawita taught Hiawatha a condolence ceremony that would help him work through his sorrow and steer him away from revenge. The comfort came in the form of words of understanding how the sorrowing person felt. We might call this empathy. When a person is sad and grieving, their tears sting their eyes so they cannot see. So comforting words can wipe away the tears and help you to see again. When you are sad, your ears feel blocked and you can't hear. So comforting words can take away the blocks so you can hear again. And when you are suffering in your grief, your throat gets choked up and you can't speak or sing. Words of condolence and comfort can help to take away the obstruction in your throat so you can speak again. If someone close to you died, your friends would come and comfort you with these words and help you in your grief. Dagonawida did this for Hiawatha. The third thing that Dagonawida taught Hiawatha was the re-quickening ceremony. The Iroquoian tribes would adopt someone from another tribe to take the place of the person who died or their names would be given to another person. In this way, their sense of loss would be fulfilled. Daganawida, who came to be known as the great peacemaker, and Hiawatha, who was a compelling and talented speaker, convinced the various Iroquoian nations to come together in a treaty of peace, putting to an end the cycle of enmity and retaliation among the tribes. The Confederacy united the nations in a common goal of peace among themselves and provided a peaceful way to make decisions that concern them all. The nations that joined this League of Five Nations were the Mohawks, Onedas, Onondagas, Cayugas, and the Senecas. The Tuscarora Nation was to join much later. Together they created the Great Law of Peace, which was essentially a constitution for the Confederacy. Many of the principles of this constitution were democratic in nature. For example, each nation had its own chiefs and a representative voice in the Grand Council. The central nation, the Onondaga, had a final voice, but acted more as spiritual leaders. The elected head chief of the Grand Council took the name Tadadaho, and the keeper of the wampum chief took the name Hiawatha. To commemorate the Confederacy, a wampum belt was created, which is known as the Hiawatha Wampum Belt. It is made up of over 6,000 beads of white and purple. The purple represents the universe and the sky surrounding us, and the white represents the good mind with its pure thoughts of forgiveness and understanding. At the center of the wampum belt is a white pine tree known as the Tree of Peace that represents the Onondaga Nation where the Central Council fires are held. The other nations in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy are represented with open white squares connected by a white band. The band represents all time and has no beginning or end, but it does not cross through the white squares. This is because each nation has its own separate identity and domain, but is still connected in a common bond. There are two main things that are important for us to know about the formation of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. One, it is one of the earliest and longest standing constitutional democracies in the world and is therefore very significant. Some people think that it formed part of the basis of the American Constitution. The second thing is that the formation of the Confederacy brought the Iroquoian nations into one powerful unit that would play a major role in shaping the history of Canada. The Confederacy continues to operate to this day. Hiawatha and the Great Peacemaker have gone down in history for their role in bringing the nations together in peace. 
Thank you so much for listening. You can find helpful links and show notes for this episode at our website, canadahomeschools.com. Please share this podcast with your friends and leave a rating and positive review on your podcast provider. This will help others find their dose of inspiration and encouragement. Happy homeschooling, Canada! Hee <laughs> hee!